TED Audio Collective. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Got a call from my manager, and I was in the back of a taxi, and he said, hey, uh, how would you like to be the host of The Daily Show? That's Trevor Noah. My mind was blown, and I still don't think I understood the gravity of the entire show. And I remember I got out of the taxi and my knees were weak and I, I probably would have fainted if I was just like walking. I'm glad I was sitting down when I got the news. And um, yeah, and that's, that's when it happened. When Trevor got that call, his work life changed. He'd spent a lot of his career working solo as a stand-up comedian in clubs and theaters, mostly in South Africa. But now he works with a full creative team in New York City. Four days a week, they make a show that millions of people watch. And I want to know how they pull that off. Because usually... Big groups are where creativity goes to die. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with Ted. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I'm inviting myself into some truly unusual places where they've mastered something I wish everyone knew about work. Today, creativity under the gun and how you can be more creative in whatever you do. Thanks to Warby Parker for sponsoring this episode. When you have a creative challenge, the natural starting point is to bring a group of people together to brainstorm. Workplaces have relied on brainstorming for years. There's just one small problem. It doesn't work. We actually have decades of evidence that brainstorming backfires. Groups produce fewer ideas and worse ideas than the same people working alone. So what is it about group brainstorming that stifles creativity? First, people silence themselves because they're afraid of looking stupid. Second, some people silence others by dominating the conversation. And third, everyone just supports the boss's favorite idea. But The Daily Show has overcome these problems. They've cracked the code of group creativity. And I'm going in to find out how. It's 9 a.m. on a Tuesday. Walking in, it's clear that this show is a massive machine. On any given day, over 100 staff and crew members are working on it. But I want to focus on one part of that machine, the writer's room. It's where a creative team of writers, producers, and on-camera talent come together. Being in a writer's room is sort of an organizational psychologist's dream. At least it's one of mine. And The Daily Show is giving me backstage access to see how they start the day with a blank page and end up with 22 minutes of great comedy. The room is packed with about 30 people. Some of them are sitting on couches, lots of them are sitting on the floor, and some of them even have their dogs. They're starting to kick around ideas before Trevor arrives. It's November, and the big news of the day is Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore. There are a few weeks left before the special election to replace Jeff Sessions. We all know how that played out, But at the time, it was great material. They start off by playing clips from yesterday's news, and then they riff. Uh, People saying Roy Moore was banned from the mall. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that the mall 
has higher standards than like the U.S. Senate. <laughs> yeah. Overnight, Moore denied the accusations. I never did what she said I did. I don't even know the woman. I don't know anything about her. I don't even know where the restaurant is or what. <laughs> at all. Like, he's like, I deny it. It's absolutely false. I have no idea what it's about. But like, <laughs> with every accuser, it's like, well, he was here every night. Like, we have a picture of him on the wall. That he's <laughs> <laughs> Sooner or later with accusers, he's just going to have to be like, look, I'm not even from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been here before. Uh, what <laughs> I am not Roy Moore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm calling him Roy. <laughs> the room is starting to feel like a really crowded family dinner. Everyone is jumping into the conversation. I wonder if, like, his favorite booth has, like, his name carved into it. Like, <laughs> Roy Moore's seat. Yeah. We, like, I never got uh, pancakes and waffles there. And the restaurant's like, that's what we call the Roy Moore special. <laughs> <laughs> his picture's on the wall for the pancake challenge. <laughs> the first thing I notice is that the room is full of creative bursts. Believe it or not, there's a name for that in the psychology of creativity. It's called burstiness. Burstiness is like the best moments in improv jazz. Someone plays a note, someone else jumps in with a harmony, and pretty soon you have a collective sound that no one planned. Most groups never get to that point. But you know burstiness when you see it. At The Daily Show, the room just literally sounds like it's bursting with ideas. You could hear it in the Roy Moore joke. Um, I think... Oh, here we go. What's up, man? Trevor Noah just walked in the room. Uh, we're just watching, laughing at Roy Moore, uh, going to the mall, hanging around until Getting the... Getting uh, from the mall? Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty extreme yeah. detail that they left out. While you're the DA. Yeah. You know when a mall cop is like, look, Mr. DA. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's also really hard to get banned by the mall. Like, if you're yeah. a bad teenager, you don't get banned yeah. by the mall. Roy Mars like, making excuses now for why he's banned. He's like, no, no, I was uh, stealing lipstick. <laughs> so right there, my ears perk up. The burstiness is back, even with Trevor in the room. Everyone's throwing out half-baked ideas to their boss. How comfortable are you just brainstorming on the fly? in front of the most powerful person in your workplace. If you have a boss who's constantly judging you, that would be a nightmare. You'd be afraid of getting it wrong or looking dumb. But Trevor sets an inviting tone. There's no frenzy, no panic. He's guiding the group. Although the clock is ticking, he doesn't sound stressed. All right, so let's just go down that list then. Let's breeze through it. The meeting wraps up at 10.30. They have an outline for the show. Now it's time to divide and conquer. The writers only have about two hours before their first drafts are due. So I need a couple of writers to, to just do like a round, roundup of the Asia rap, and then two writers who want to do the um, Don Jr. is an idiot thing. They go off in pairs to write. I want to dig in further to find out how they create the ideal conditions for burstiness. So I track down the head writer, Jubin Parang, and senior writer, Daniel Radosh. Psychologists talk about this pattern they call burstiness, uh, which is like how rapidly we're taking turns in conversation and interrupting each other. I noticed there were like there were moments when like somebody had a pretty good joke and then like four people built on it. You know, of course, the main thing we're trying to accomplish is to get the jokes out of the material, and that's where the burstiness comes from. I love how you've just adopted the language of burstiness, like that's a normal thing people would say. <laughs> we're very uh, improv focused. Yeah, whatever you say, that's a new term. We're doing it. Yeah. But let's be clear: not everyone was immediately on board. Here are two of the newer writers, Kat Radley and Colleen Worthman. 
Burstiness? Yeah, burstiness. Did you and come up with that? No, no, oh. I'm just borrowing it. I first learned about burstiness from a colleague. I'm Anita Williams-Woolley. I'm an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Burstiness is when everybody is speaking and responding to each other in a short amount of time instead of having it drawn out over a long period of time. Anita sees burstiness in all kinds of groups, not just at work. So I have four older brothers. I also have three kids who are all boys. And I joke how this explains my whole life because pretty much any dinnertime conversation, you can hear me say, wait a minute, let me finish. There's a lot of burstiness in the conversation and a little, a lot of interrupting, which seems not to bother them at all, but sometimes can drive me crazy. So, Interruptions aren't always rude. When you're in a crunch, you want everyone to pitch in fast. Anita studied software teams working in different places around the globe. She found that the most innovative and productive teams were bursty. The more effective teams sort of figured out when their team members were likely to be working and they would get online at a similar time and start exchanging uh, messages, sending each other code, whereas other teams might have communicated just as much and engaged in just as much activity, but kind of more dictated by their own personal schedule. And those teams were not as effective. Burstiness is a sign that you're not stuck in one of those dysfunctional brainstorming sessions. It's when a group reaches its creative peak. Because everyone is participating freely and contributing ideas. I don't think that burstiness is unique to creative fields. However, I think probably creative fields do really benefit from burstiness. The people who are in the conversation are energized because when you speak, somebody's going to respond to you right away. You know they're listening, and then you're listening to them. And so it's much easier to exchange ideas and maybe build ideas. But of course, burstiness looks different when your raw materials aren't bits of code, but bits of comedy. In the writer's room, the burstiness doesn't just happen by accident. I asked Trevor Noah about it. When I'm in a, a writer's room, there are two things that are happening in my head. One, I'm looking at what we're going to be doing on the show that day. And two, I'm thinking about the room as a comedy room and how much laughter it is imbued with in that moment. And I know it's, it's, it's extremely superstitious and no one can ever prove it or disprove it, but I believe that that like laughter is, is absorbed just like secondhand cigarette smoke into the very fabric of who we are as human beings. Uh, watching you in the room this morning, uh, I, was, I was intrigued by a few things. One, I expected a big change when you walked in and there wasn't a lot that was different, uh, which is a sign to me that you've made it incredibly psychologically safe. Right. That, like people are not afraid of you. Um, oh, in you, the room? Yeah, oh, like that's the, the writers. They're like, they're not freaked out that you walked in. Oh, they're still yeah, pitching, yeah, yeah. you know, some pretty half-baked jokes. Right. That's called psychological safety. It's where you can take risks without feeling afraid. Without that sense of safety, creative bursts don't happen. People censor themselves. Well, I, I, I've always believed that in any relationship where there is someone who is in charge, whether it's in a family, with a parent, or whether it's a teacher, or whether it's a, a boss in a work environment, really what... what brings out the best in people, in my opinion, is a mutual respect. I trust that my writers are trying to help me make the best show, and they trust that I want to make the funniest show. It's taken a long time, but now when I, when I walk into a meeting, I'm walking into a continuing conversation. Building psychological safety takes time. It's something you create a little every day, and you can see it in small moments. 
There was one that caught my eye in the writer's room. I was saying that jerky fish, it was so good. Like, even even, even in the room. That was great, yeah, that went well. Did you catch that? Trevor just said that his head writer, Zubin, pitched a good joke. I'm a funny guy. I write good jokes. <laughs> the whole idea of burstiness is that when the group has momentum, you want it to keep going. So I wonder why Trevor interrupted it. Is that deliberate? Is that a conscious effort on your part to, to praise somebody in front of the group? Or is that just something that happens spontaneously? Oh, I, I think that's a, that's a subconscious thing. But I, I've always believed in crediting people where credit is due, especially when you're working in an environment where all of the praise is, is bound to be aimed towards myself. So if something's amazing on the show, Trevor gets the credit. If something's horrible on the show, Trevor gets the, you know, the credit as well, or the blame. And so I think it just moves people forward as, as human beings to know that we are acknowledged in, in whatever we're doing. When you're in a creative group that's bursting, it's easy to lose track of who said what and whether your input even matters. Here's Daniel. It's such a um, blender, like all this material gets put in and you end up with this kind of comedy smoothie at the end that tastes delicious, but you might not be able to say, oh, that's my strawberry that was in there. We do kind of all understand that most jokes don't make it to air, especially not as they're originally conceived. It may not be the joke that you made that ends up going on TV, but it could be the joke that makes you feel a certain way that gets you to the joke that you put on TV. And so... Uh, there was a line I thought of yesterday with the, the Roy Moore accusations and Sean Hannity came out to defend him. And I said, Sean Hannity has a season ticket to the wrong side of history. And I, I just, it made me giggle, like, you know, and, the, and then I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to say that. And so if your day is punctuated with joy, that joy will manifest itself in the final product that is the show. We'll be back with more from Trevor and The Daily Show after the break. This is going to be a different kind of ad. In the spirit of exploring creative ideas at work, we're going to take you inside Warby Parker, our sponsor. Warby Parker's Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa have a lot in common. You might not be able to tell us apart by our voices, but I'm Neil. And I'm Dave. Yeah, that didn't help me at all. <laughs> but thanks, I appreciate you trying. <laughs> yep. They sound alike, they went to the same school, they have the same friends, and they also have the same job. Neil and Dave are the co-CEOs of Warby Parker, a billion-dollar company that's made buying eyeglasses cool again. I've always been fascinated with dynamic duos like Neil and Dave. Not only do they run the company together, but their collaborative leadership spreads throughout the culture. The ability to work across teams, from product to customer service to retail, has been key to Warby Parker's success. I sat down with them at headquarters in New York to talk about what it's like being the boss together. The obvious metaphor for a co-CEO relationship is, you know, married couple. But you both talk about it a little bit more in terms of parenting. You know, I think that's right. With parenting, you need a philosophy, right? Um, you need a vision for what you want your children to grow up to be. It also just makes the highs higher, being able to celebrate wins, and it makes the lows higher and be able to uh, to blunt some of the frustrating parts that, that come up. Um, we also, at times, will play different roles, uh, just like in a negotiation, there might be good cop, bad cop. Having a two-year-old and a six-year-old, I know that. <laughs> Rachel and I often uh, do that as well. What's it like to lead a company with an old friend? You know, often I'm talking to other founders and, and CEOs, and, and they'll often speak 
to a loneliness of, of the role. And I've never felt that way. And one of the best things about having a partner is that um, you can just look at each other and, and laugh and, and crack up. Some of the situations are really difficult. Others are just absurd. Um, and it just makes it, I think, a lot more enjoyable to have somebody alongside. What are the, the top three pieces of advice that you would give to somebody who's going to lead with a, a fellow leader? Build trust, communicate frequently, which often leads to trust, and work with somebody that you enjoy spending time with. How many hours do you think you guys have spent together in your lifetimes? Maybe 15,000 hours. And, and, and what do they say? You need 10,000 hours to become an expert at something? Oh, yeah. So. We're experts in each other. <laughs> when do I get a ring? <laughs> that was Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa, co-CEOs and co-founders of Warby Parker. Warby Parker has tons of interesting frames. If you're tired of wearing contact lenses, you might want to try their monocle. Looking for somewhere to start? Their free home try-on program lets you select five frames to test out for five days. If you don't like them, you can send them back. Try it today at warbyparker.com ted. If you've ever brainstormed, you know you're supposed to put criticism on hold. Let every thought fly. There's no such thing as a bad idea. But actually, that's a bad idea. It turns out that people are more creative in groups where criticism is welcomed. It raises the bar. Psychological safety doesn't mean that everything is all warm and fuzzy. You still need to have standards. At The Daily Show, the writers don't let each other get away with bad jokes. You don't shit on someone for making a bad joke. I mean, you do, but, you know, you still want them to do what, it. What does that look like? I think uh, light ribbing about yes. uh, how that joke, although usually the person who made the joke is the first to, to joke about how <laughs> yeah. bad that joke yeah. went. You create safety by helping people feel comfortable laughing at themselves. And some new experiments have shown us how to do that. It all starts with a paperclip. Researchers asked, how many new uses can you come up with for this paperclip? People went off to brainstorm. Group one generated pretty typical ideas. A ring, a bracelet, and a necklace. But group two came up with totally unexpected uses, like a wound suture, artwork, and a screwdriver. What made the difference? In the first group, everyone just launched into brainstorming. But in the second group, people were randomly assigned to share an embarrassing story before the brainstorm. And that simple act lowered their inhibitions. This is something they know from experience at The Daily Show. I once misspoke about how in order to keep flexible, uh, <laughs> we all need to keep our hips on a swivel. Uh, and I meant we got to keep our, our heads on a swivel. But I said that two years ago, and in the subsequent two years, I've kept saying hips on a swivel because everybody says that's not right. You're not saying it right. I'm sorry, is heads on a swivel better? <laughs> heads on a swivel is the actual term. <laughs> Nothing it should ever like be on a swivel. <laughs> Regardless, uh, every, every mistake you make in a comedy writer's room usually becomes a bit, and I think that only helps foster... Uh, the creativity about the place. Like, if we, we'll take the bad things you said and we'll make fun of them, that makes everyone a bit more lighthearted about, uh, about speaking up. So I've been having fun talking to the writers about safety and burstiness, but I can't stop thinking about the clock. We're about three hours away from taping. 
even though I'm not working on the show, I'm starting to feel a little stressed about the deadline. I asked Kat and Colleen if they're freaking out. Does it ever hit you how crazy that is that you started at 9 a.m. and you're going to have a show by the evening? Yeah, it is. I yeah, mean, it's it, mental. Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, before I had this job, I used to think, like, how do they do it every day? But now you see it, you're like, oh, I get it. There's enough people who are very good at what they do that they make it happen. But it is, it's a very fast paced. Yeah. But this is also like a factory that's been here for a really long time. A you factory? know, like it's an extremely mm-hmm. well oiled machine. Yeah. It's like everyone has an incredibly here. precise <laughs> contribution to make. You know how long you have to do it. You, I mean, you know what the quality standards are. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No one seems stressed at all. Mm-hmm. People are just kind of chill, smiling. Is that, is that how it always is? Yeah, I think it depends on the day. But for the most part, I feel like everyone's usually pretty chill because you never feel like, oh, this is coming down to me. You always know there's going to be someone else to help you out. Yeah, feeling feeling like loose and a sense of possibility is always just a better place to operate from creatively, I think. And so even if you get that little you know, twinkle of anxiety or whatever inside of yourself, it just works better to go like, you know what? I'm an ever-rushing river. It's corny, but it works for me, so I do that. The relaxed atmosphere frees them up for creative bursts. They also have the security of knowing that their days are meticulously planned and organized. In fact, there's structure everywhere. Because what The Daily Show has done, consciously or not, is build task bubbles into each day. Task bubbles. So think of a time when you've walked into a meeting and tried to jump into the discussion, but you couldn't. It felt kind of like there was a force field that you just bounced off of. That's a task bubble, where people are totally absorbed in a common project. It keeps the group focused. That way, everyone can build on each other's ideas and bursts. Task bubbles give the writers and producers the space they need to hone and refine their ideas. Without these protected hours for collaboration, they'd all be working at different times out of sync. Once the writers are being sent off to write, they have usually two uninterrupted hours to think through what the structure of it's going to be with respect to the guidelines we've laid out, to add their jokes. The only time I interrupt is when there's been a significant change Trevor has, has called for or news has broken that requires an immediate edit. Too much structure can inhibit creativity, but so can too little structure. If you agree together on some rules for when and how to work, you can focus all your energy on doing the work. Here are Jen Flans and Steve Bodo, the executive producers. I think there's a myth that when you're working at a comedy show that it's like all fun all the time and we're just like bouncing a ping pong ball off the wall. And I mean, it's fun, but it's run like a newsroom a little bit. Planning and structure. It sounds like it's rigid, but it's actually what gives you the freedom to find the creative discoveries that'll make the thing sing. Because, of course, creativity doesn't really start with a blank page. It begins with some raw material. In The Daily Show's case, it's the news clips they play in the morning meeting. Segment producers have already reviewed hours of footage and selected the most promising clips. Once everyone has agreed on the headlines, the writers know the first act will be 7 to 12 minutes long, the second should be 4 to 7 minutes, and they know exactly how much time they have to write. I dragged Dan Amira and David Kabuka out of their task bubble. They're two writers working to turn the morning riffs into a polished segment. 
because sometimes you have in, in your head that everybody's saying the greatest jokes all the time. And then when yeah. you realize that, no. Most of the jokes are just <laughs> pure garbage. Yeah. yeah. Then you're like, hey, let me add to this garbage as well. Yeah. And hopefully by taping, someone would have removed it and replaced it with something right. wonderful. Because the first draft is not uh, meant to be the last draft. Yeah, that's why they call it the first draft. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that was a big part of the naming process. Yeah. Okay, structure and safety help with burstiness. But you also need the right mix of people in the room. And judging creative talent is hard. Take one of my favorite studies. Hollywood producers like screenplays better when the writers presented themselves as hip artists or savvy marketers. Writers who wore funky glasses actually seemed to get an advantage. The Daily Show doesn't want to be swayed by those kinds of stereotypes. They want to pick the most creative writers. And executive producers Jen and Steve have a process for doing that. That's his baby. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's something I started probably in 2008. The inspiration came from something powerful that happened in orchestras. Blind auditions. We blindfold them (laughs) and bring them to a secure location. Maybe not like that. For years, American symphonies were dominated by men. In the 1970s, a typical ensemble had nine men for every woman. Supposedly, women weren't talented enough. But by the 1990s, the gap closed to less than two to one. A huge reason that happened? The industry introduced blind auditions, where candidates played from behind a curtain. Once the evaluators couldn't see whether a performer was a man or a woman, their biases were neutralized. They focused solely on the quality of the music. And as they should have known all along, the women were just as excellent as the men. Well, The Daily Show has a similar approach. Uh, You know, it was uh, an effort to hopefully diversify, you know, in another important way in the show, not on camera, but, uh, but in the writer's room. You'd always get submissions from writers that had their names on them, and oftentimes then maybe they'd be somebody you knew or somebody like a friend of a friend, that sort of thing. And just to try to take that ingredient out of it and just said, well, what if we just number them? The first time they tried blind submissions, they hired three new writers, and two were women. Soon they hired more people of color and writers from outside America, too. So by the time Trevor joined the show, he was working with a diverse cast and crew. And it was a priority for him to continue diversifying from every angle. But at first, he wasn't sure how to bring in his own background as a South African. I got so swept up in people saying I was an outsider that I forgot that most of us are outsiders. It just depends on where we're looking in or out from. Diverse backgrounds and perspectives help with creative bursts, but we don't always realize it. When everyone in a group is the same race, they do worse at creative problem solving, but they think they do better because they're more comfortable. Diverse groups are more creative. It's not just because they have access to a wider range of ideas. They feel more uncomfortable, and that discomfort motivates them to do extra preparation and share new information. Trump is an African dictator will always be one of my favorites because it was the first moment on the show where people thought that I might have a chance That segment Trevor's talking about, it grew out of his own experience. It was the first segment where I realized that my uniqueness could be used as a skill as opposed to a hindrance. My president also didn't release his tax returns, hasn't released them for the time he was president. You know, my my president also has friendships with the Russians that that are shady at best. In creating the show, I've now realized that 
I can create within the show a feeling of outsiderness, which is generally a curiosity. And that is a willingness to learn of a world that you do not know much about. And so I try and take the show into that sphere. At this point in the day, the writers and producers have come back together for rehearsal. Trevor's in his suit. The lights are up. It looks just like I've seen it on TV. And now it's time to try out all the jokes. Trevor's delivering them for the first time, weaving in his own impressions of Roy Moore. Well, let's kick off the show with something light. Alabama GOP Senate candidate Roy Moore and his escalating sex scandal. I'm especially curious what pickup lines Roy Moore used. Are you tired? Because you've been running away from me all day. That's a cute dress. It will look even better outside of this Tablot's kids. Tell oh, Talbot's kids. Gap kids? Yeah. Do you have a coupon? Because my pants are 50% off. <laughs> New accuser Beverly Young Nelson came forward to say that he sexually assaulted her when she was a 16-year-old working part-time at a local restaurant. But he still says he's innocent. I don't know that restaurant or any other restaurant for that matter. Actually, I've never ingested food. I don't even have a mouth. I feel like Moore would still deny everything, even if there was a picture of him at the restaurant for winning a pancake eating contest. At the end of every rehearsal, the writers and producers swarm the set. Sometimes you'll have a script where you're like, this script is magic. This is, we don't even need to, why are we rehearsing? Guys, why are we rehearsing? (laughs) And then you go to rehearsal and you're like, okay, does anyone have any other ideas? And right now, it looks like the creative team has some feedback. I think we need to rewrite some of these jokes. Like the last one, I feel like more of the time, even if there was a picture of him at the restaurant for winning a pancake game contest, it's not, yeah. not jokey. No, I it's like this It needs a code of rewrite on it, but it's, but it's structurally in you my You it needs a total rewrite on it? A coach of rewrites. Oh, okay, rewrite. like, wow, yeah. We need to throw it out and do something yeah. different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A rewrite? Seriously? I thought it was pretty funny, but the writers and producers weren't satisfied. They only have about an hour to work on their final material. And I'm left to wonder, what's going on behind closed doors? There's a satanic ritual. No. (laughs) So there's a rewrite room, which is pretty much just like Trevor, head writer, producers. It's a very small room. There's like eight or nine people kind of crammed in there. It's kind of like... optional. Right. Healthy snacks. Going through the whole script top to bottom and just making sure everything's as punchy and strong as it can be. Now it's out of their hands and the show goes live. Here's Trevor on air skewering Roy Moore. This guy is a, he's a legend. He's a legend. It's almost like his past self is snitching on his future self. <laughs> because everything he denies, he already pre-confessed. Like, now I want him to be like, I definitely never sat down at that restaurant. Really? Uh, this booth has your name uh, carved into it. Well, I never ate anything there. Your picture's on the wall for the pancake eating contest. <laughs> Look, I don't know how this whole thing is going to end up, but as of now... Both the Senate's and House Republican leadership have called on Roy Moore to step down. And it looks like he might be expelled from the Senate if he wins the election. Now, I'm not saying he's not a good fit for the Senate, but 40 years ago, he wrote in a yearbook, I'm not good for the Senate. (laughs) We'll be right back. Trevor and his creative team do this day in, day out. After watching them make a whole show, it's clear that these people know each other remarkably well. They know who will have a funny take on each topic, which writers to pair together, which producers have the best expertise on each segment, 
and who can straighten out a messy script. Here's Steve. Because we have so many shows to do, you know, 160 a year, there is not a hell of a lot of time for taking retreats or uh, doing dry runs of things. The way you do new process or the way that you get people to work together is by making a show and then making another show and then making another show. Groups aren't always bad for creativity. Maybe we've just studied them the wrong way. We've rarely tracked groups that have created safety and structure over years of working together. So no matter how good you get at finding the right people, if you want a group to have creative bursts, what matters most is the time you spend getting to know each other. It's a twist on the idea that 10,000 hours of practice helps you become an expert. Normally, we think that means practicing a skill solo. But if group creativity is your goal, maybe you should be practicing together. I think we should take groups more seriously as an essential unit of creativity. Instead of looking for creative individuals, what if we hired intact creative groups? And instead of promoting individual superstars, what if we promoted entire teams? Because the best creative groups aren't just the sum of their parts. They're the sum of their shared experience. Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media and Pineapple Street Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Angela Chang, and Janet Lee. This episode was produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Our show is mixed by David Herman with help from Dan DeZula. Original music by Hansdale Sue. Special thanks to our sponsors, Warby Parker, Accenture, Bonobos, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Next time on Work Life, we're going to Indiana to meet the Butler Bulldogs, a basketball team with a weird way of building a culture and beating the odds. I had those five guys in my office, and, you know, my biggest, daunt, most daunting task was how do you choose captain? I brought them all in, and, and I just said, hey, we've got 12 guys on the team, but all five of you are captains. So, like, 40, <laughs> 40% of our team were captains. I, you know the one thing, Adam, I didn't want to do? I didn't want to disempower one of them. That's next time on Work Life. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, we would all really appreciate it if you could rate and review the show. It helps other people find us. See you next week.